All right. So hello and welcome to another episode of Behind the Artist presented by Cosmo Records. Now, this is Seth, your host, and I'm very honored today to be speaking with an author, father, Christian, entrepreneur, role model, fellow musician, and true warrior of life who has fought his way through immense personal challenges to get to where he is today. I'm speaking to C. Ray Stanziola, the author of Life of an Immigrant, The Journey to America for C. Ray Stanziola. And C. Ray is also the founder of the I Am Latino movement. So welcome, C. Ray. It's good to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Seth. Appreciate it. So, C. Ray, um, for the folks that have not uh, been familiarized with your story and your background, for the people who have not, perhaps not yet read your book or have not listened to the audio book from Amazon and Audible, so just briefly in the brief summary, because we'll go into some pretty deep details later on in this uh, call, uh, what is the what is your story? Who is C. Ray Stanziola? And you can start by telling your story from where you were born and in what, what time you were born, what conditions were there. So go ahead and tell us a bit more about yourself to give us a background. Well, I was actually born in Panama, uh, Central America, uh, right where the Panama Canal is. I was born in a border town from Costa Rica called Chiriqui, City David, city where I was born. And uh, I'm from Italian descent. descent. So um, I, growing up, you know, my parents, all I knew was they were always working. Uh, mom was the one that took care of us to go to school. That was already. And uh, I knew a little bit about my dad and my grandpa and what they were doing, uh, helping Noriega at the time, since my grandfather was Noriega's, you know, councilman. But uh, growing up in Panama, things were really, really easy. You know, we were all good students. We, we didn't get into trouble. I was probably the most rebellious out of all because I always wanted to do something that my parents didn't want me to do. Uh, jump the fence to go play soccer in the front of the house. My dad comes around and I see him. I jump the fence back. He sees me and then he spanks me when I got home. You know, those kinds of normal things, you know, a little bit of a, uh, I sometimes get in trouble for no reason, but my life was pretty normal until, you know, uh, you know, uh, this situation with the invasion happened back in 1989 in December. So uh, we, 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 my parents decided to, to move to the States. And, you know, like I said, growing up, I'm, I'm the oldest of four. Uh, I have a sister who is about 37 right now. My little brother is 34. And my, my brother that follows me is about 41, 42. So, um, and, uh, you know, parents always... Uh, they weren't believers, uh, you know, they, they, they love God, but they, you know, they were just hardworking people that, that, you know, uh, try to support their children. We saw mom more often than we saw dad, because dad was always working. But growing up, my life was really, I want to say, now that I've been in the States for so many years, over, over well, close to 30 years, uh, you know, I learned that, you know, I learned a lot in my country about life outside of the city. In other words, my father taught me things that people that grow up in the city normally don't learn, like hunting and fishing and, you know, taught me not to be afraid of animals and, uh, you know, how to slaughter a cow. You know, I know that's not something that we see on a regular basis, you know, eat chicken from the patio, you know, things like that. Stuff that, you know, 
you don't see all the time. And so a lot of that made me really kind of aware and, and open my mind to another world, which is the nature, appreciating nature, you know, sitting under the tree and grabbing a mango, you know, type of thing. So a lot of that, I'm very grateful for my father teaching me a lot of these things that helped me you know, become who I am today as well. So, but life and, just, Panama, and sorry quiet. to interrupt C Ray. Sorry to interrupt C Ray, but at the time uh, when you grew up in Panama, who was the leader of Panama? At the time was uh, well, uh, you know, Noriega was the general because they, they were the country was based on on a military, but we had a president. However, but the one who really ran the country was Noriega. Uh, you know, he was the one that really called the shots and, and things like that. So he he was a general. When I met him, he was only a captain. So he was, I was, I was very, very young. <laughs> I was probably, what, shoot, maybe eight or something like that. And I would travel with my father that would take my grandfather to see him in, in the capital of Panama, which is six hours away from where we were from. And uh, I would sit in the living room and, and, and kind of sort of they get me busy playing with whatever they had there at the time. I couldn't remember very clearly, but my, my grandfather would go into a, a, a room, closed doors, and then we wouldn't know what they would discuss there. But, you know, he, he then became a general. And, and, and so that's also, so I've, I've met Noriega even when he was a captain. So it was, it was many, many years before, you know, the invasion happened. Right. And I, I recall like reading over your book, um, your family had a very special relationship with the general, isn't that right? They did, and it was based because it was based on my grandfather's relationship with him. So uh, the the way that really went is my grandfather. I I don't remember exactly how they met, and I guess I never really asked my father uh, how they met. However, my grandfather apparently, and according to my father, because uh, my grandfather passed away a few years ago, mm-hmm. he was in some kind of cult. And in the cult, uh, he was uh, very spiritual. And Noriega used my grandfather for advice on how to accomplish certain things. And one of them was my grandfather predicted that Noriega, when he was a captain, would become a general if he did certain things. Mm -hmm. And that prediction became true down the line. And Noriega became more assertive and more confident on my grandfather's counsel because of those kinds of predictions. And I'm, I'm, I'm only mentioning one of probably many because I, I don't know the rest of them. But, uh, and then that convinced Noriega even more to believe everything that my grandfather would say. And that's why he became sort of his personal counselor. Uh, nothing to do with his military uh, um, experience or military uh, anything. It was more in the personal level. Uh, when he needed some, if he was to make a really tough decision uh, on anything that had to do with his, you know, ruling over Panama, then he would call my grandfather, have him come over and then discuss those matters. And then he would then give him his spiritual advice. And then Noriega, the most part, would do what he said. Right. So, and again, like you mentioned in the book that this uh, spiritual movement also had organization, right? There was, I believe there was a temple of sorts or some kind of um, office or headquarters in Los Angeles. Yes. Yeah, so the way I, I found that out, so it was, I did a little bit of research and I, I don't know how to pronounce it in English because I only knew it in Spanish, but it had to do with a cult uh, that it's kind of sort of like uh, the Masons type of thing. They have certain ranks 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and my grandfather was a very high level ranked, uh, in that particular cult. And, uh, one of the things that he did is took the prayers in Noriega when he was a captain to become a general all the way to their temple in, in, in Los Angeles, which I don't know if it still remains because I'm talking many, many, many years ago, I mean, oh, close to 40, 35 years ago. But, um, uh, but yes, they, they did have hubs in different places. And my grandfather was ranked quite high for his level in, in that particular um, cult. So, right. And, you know, I know that going through your book, I mean, you have had like almost every chapter of your book, I noticed there was some kind of major challenge that you experienced yet through belief in yourself and also belief in your faith uh, in God and the support of your family, you somehow got through some enormous catastrophes that would have crushed others. And I'm wondering, like, what is your opinion on this behind the success? I mean, referring to the success of Noriega and moving up the ranks and having so much influence and power that he eventually acquired, um, do you think that Noriega's quick ascent to power was more from some mystical powers granted to him by, you know, the Latino Freemasons or, or was your grandfather's belief in him and the encouragement and the motivation and the inspiration so much that he believed in success and he could not even think of failure as an option? So you've heard of the power of attraction and the, and the beliefs of self-affirmations where some people can even believe uh, that a tumor will go away, and they do. So what do you think is kind of more behind this uh, success, if you can call it that, of Noriega in the early years? Was it more driven by this cult, so you say, or more driven by inspiration and self-esteem and self-confidence that your grandfather helped him acquire? Well, I think, I think it's a combination of two, but primarily I believe it, was, it had to do with the belief and the cult and then what my grandfather was encouraging to. Because here is, I didn't understand these things until I became a believer and understood uh, the spiritual realm to an extent. And I, and I would have probably given you a completely different opinion about this same question years before if I didn't know what I know now about the spiritual realm. But to be quite honest, I do believe that you know, primarily uh, the belief on what my grandfather was doing and, and that spiritual powers in, uh, uh, setting things up in the spiritual realm for him to become what he became. So I, I do believe that there was some, some of that involved. And then I think as he, as he was growing, his own confidence grew uh, because of the successes that were happening but I think he was already a person who was confident enough to, to take over what he took over. I mean, he, he was convinced that he could do certain things. So that came all from him. But the success that he had in the ranking changes and the predictions that my grandfather made for him to become what he became uh, gave him the, the, the affirmations that whatever my grandfather was teaching him or doing was the way to go as opposed to him trying to be just a very confident person in what he was trying to do. So I do believe that this is more a spiritual thing than, than a personal confidence type of thing. Gotcha, gotcha. And so moving on, um, you mentioned in your book that uh, your family had quite a comfortable position uh, under Noriega at the time. And uh, it was because that your family, and again, not only your family, it was a, lar- a large amount of Panamanians, groups, families, institutions who were aligned with the Noriega government. And um, 
that kind of came to a crashing halt when Noriega lost his favor with the U.S. Can you kind of talk a bit about that? What kind of interrupted your life in Panama? What was the triggering point? Uh, well, um, I, of course, I didn't know all the details of what Noriega was doing as a young young guy. But uh, we, my grandfather, though he was a very strong influence in Noriega's life, mm -hmm. was a very humble person. And I think I had to do a lot with his own persona, his own uh, character. He was just a very simple, humble person. So Noriega did offer him many times, you know, uh, opportunities for him to make lots of money. And, and he denied those, those declined those offers because he kept himself with the lots of integrity as a spiritual counselor for Noriega. Mm -hmm. However, uh, Noriega, uh, my father, uh, Noriega, because of my grandfather's influence, uh, was able to help my, my parents, uh, have really good jobs. Uh, my mother was, uh, she, she actually, instead of having to work her way up, got a job as one of the, uh, regional, uh, you know, uh, DMV. So the driving, you know, where you get your license and stuff, uh, for the whole state. And then my father was, uh, you know, also for the whole state. Uh, the guy who handled all the sports in the in the state, and so those those the director of all sports in the state. So he they had really good positions, very stable jobs because Noriega opened the doors for them to to get those jobs with just a phone call away. My father also loved uh, you know the outdoors, loved the uh, you know farm farming and and raising cattle and stuff. So uh, he also got the hookup with Noriega to get funding. Uh, or financing on two farms uh, that that had you know eight hundred plus acres, uh, and another one had even more than that. And he would raise cattle there, and uh, and pigs, and all kinds of different things. And that was because Noriega allowed him to get the funding or the or the financing through one of the national banks in the in the in the, in the country, and he was able to 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 do those things. So. Yeah, the influence of Nor uh, my grandfather in Noriega's life helped my parents have some type of stability for us. Of course, we never knew this until later on when we had to had to figure a way to, to, to get out of the country because of all that happened with the invasion. But uh, there was a lot of influence uh, uh, on my parents, you know, prosperity and, and success in their, in their jobs because of Noriega, yes. Right. And I read further on that what kind of caused the trigger for your immigration to the United States, what caused a lot of the concern um, and the violence uh, in Panama around your family was that the United States, who once had a friendly relationship with Noriega, they eventually turned against him, right? They did, yeah. And yeah, they, I believe they're... And, now I, and again, I'm not saying Noriega was an angel, but what triggered the invasion was a combination, I believe, of business interests, money, and politics. Because when Noriega pretty much told the U.S. to go pound sand uh, with regards to the canal, isn't that what triggered the actual military action? Yeah. Actually, Noriega, so they wanted, they wanted to extend and have Noriega kind of give the power over to them for the canal. And Noriega said the canal is, for, is the Panamanians and it will be led by the Panamanians. So they didn't like that. And so obviously it took him a couple of years, according to my father, it took him a couple of years. I think it was about three years before they actually came back and, 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 and did the invasion. But the first thing they did, according to what, you know, the information that I gathered was they tried to diminish and tarnish his, 
his reputation. Now, we know that Noriega wasn't an angel, obviously, right? Uh, and he did help the people of Panama. I mean, he, he did help, you know, like, like, you know, just like cartel people do, you know, they go and build houses and help. I mean, somehow, somewhere they help the community. But Noriega did help his people. Well, the problem that we believe was Noriega had a relationship with the, with the CIA, with, the, with the Inter Interpol. I, I believe that they worked together uh, in somehow, some way. But uh, when Noriega stood for his country, then they weren't very happy with that. And so they started, you know, kind of sort of giving him a bad press and deteriorating his, his image. Uh, and then three years later, they came in and invaded. Now, the invasion had a very particular uh, uh, purpose. I, I don't remember uh, anything, uh, you know, any of us being warned about an invasion happening. <laughs> so I'm playing out in the front. And uh, all of a sudden, we hear uh, bombs hitting the airport, which was probably a few minutes away from my house. The earth shaking. We don't know what's going on. Uh, we we were told by my father that every time the earth it was the earth was shaking that we got to get under a table so we can protect ourselves because you know and so we get under a table scared we don't know what's going on and then all of a sudden we peek out the window and see uh, a bunch of Humvees with Marines coming into our neighborhood because there's two lieutenant colonels that lived on the same street two houses away from mine and within five minutes they surround surrounded the house and took out both of them in wife beaters and handcuffs and, and took him in. I don't know where they went. I don't know what they did with him or anything like that. But, um, whoa, sorry about that. No problem. Sorry about that, Seth. No uh, problem. It sounds like C-Ray's right. pooch wanted to add something to the interview. Yeah. <laughs> so, so as uh, you were saying about the Humvees rolling up on your street, that must have been freaky for a 12-year-old. Well, yes, it was. It, first and foremost, I mean, you, you know, we've never seen action like that. I mean, it, this is kind of like watching, you know, Black Hawk down and you got mm -hmm. the Humvees unloading a bunch of Marines and then... And, 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 and I mean, I'm talking in less than five minutes, they, they surrounded the house and, and got everybody mm -hmm. that was supposed to be. And then we're looking and everybody's out. We just don't know what's happening. I mean, there's true chaos. Now, I mean, whatever the purposes, whatever the reasons they had, in my, right. in my opinion, there was no need for that many casualties. But I guess sometimes, uh, you know, when you're fighting for power, that's, that's the, the repercussions of wanting to gain power. So. But it was a very traumatic uh, situation to my parents. Obviously, you know, the whole the whole city, the whole state, the whole country was in chaos. Everybody's asking questions. What's going on? My parents are calling. We at the time don't have cell phones, obviously. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, calling the landline and sometimes we're hiding. We don't hear the phone. I'm pretty sure my parents were panicking and everybody was just it was just going crazy. Something very traumatic for someone who was around 14, 12 to 14 years old. Right. And, you know, it. It seemed like, again, the invasion was a, also a trigger for real uh, concern and risk, not only for your family, but for others who are, again, with the, with the Noriega government, because you know, the opposition government, the, the, I guess the rebels, if you were to call them, uh, they would be in a position to retaliate right, politically against 
supporters and affiliates of Noriega. So uh, was that a very real concern for you, your dad, your grandpa? Well, <clears throat> the only thing that I remember in regards to that was that, you know, some, some departments of the military and different parts of the country took matters into their own hands and wanted to attack back. Mm. And there were a lot of casualties, uh, you know, that didn't have to happen for them taking a stand without any, uh, you know, permission from, from their superiors. Noriega never uh, put, put his people in danger. In other words, Noriega never told them to go ahead and fight back because we knew that we were overpowered by the U.S. So mm -hmm. he wasn't going to put his people at risk. But some people uh, of ranking in certain different, different areas of the country decided to fight back, and that's why there were more casualties than we really wanted to have. Uh, now, of course, the bombing and all that, I mean, we didn't think that was necessary. And I guess, in my opinion, they were probably trying to test uh, different weapons with us. But net, net, uh, it, was, it was some retaliation from, from the military, the Panamanian military, towards uh, the U.S. And also there were some military people that, that turned against Noriega and, and wanted to turn him in. Uh, mm -hmm. So there was some of that as well. Whenever the whenever the people found out that that, that was oh something happened. Are you okay, buddy? <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. So whenever uh, yeah something happened. Sorry about that. No problem. Whenever uh, that happened, obviously um, there was more casualties, and 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 he knew the people who turned against him. He knew that. He knew that uh, you know not everybody was to because. You know, people found found an opportunity to turn against him now that they have support from the from the American military as well. Right. So, but he never gave the order to have um, his his people in jeopardy to fight against uh, a very much more powerful uh, enemy, which he right. was. Yes. And I, looking at your book, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but just looking over your book right here. The decision was made in your family, at least, that it was no longer going to be safe to stay in Panama. Thus, the initial move to the U.S. Is that right? Yeah, you know, I one of the things that I have to say, and I want to make sure that this is said loud and clear. I've always tried to be fair and not go by what I hear, but like to always get the facts so I can make my own judgment. You know, but I, I'm very grateful for 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 the U.S and the opportunity that he offered me to be here. Uh, my son now, uh, and I might get ahead a little bit, but my son now serves in the, in the Marines, as a Marine. Right. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for what this country has offered me. This is the land of opportunities. This is where my children were born. This is where I fed my family. This is where my parents fed us. And this is the, the, the country that's given us opportunities, and I forever will be grateful. And uh, I have nothing but good things to say about America for giving me all the opportunities to, to see my family grow and, and, and to, to prosper in this land. Whatever they do and, you know, with foreign countries and, and how they work it, it's a lot, of, a lot of different things I don't agree with, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, obviously, because I, I think most of us don't agree to certain things they do. But I, I well, like to say read those kinds of... I, well, as they say, though, to be American is to disagree, Right. Right. Yeah. So for me, I really try Seth, to, to, to leave those kinds of topics uh, a, a little farther than, than, than I want them to be, you know, farther than 
I wanted to have them closer to me because it, those topics can take us somewhere to discussions that will get people a little hot headed or a little bit, you know, heated up. And, you know, honestly, I, I'm just a grateful person for being in America, man. It's, it's a great place to be. Uh, like I said, I don't I always going to agree with what, what they do, but I'm definitely very grateful to be here. And, and there, there, there is some amazing things, amazing things that this country has done for us, especially, uh, you know, giving us an opportunity to see our, our, our generations you know, grow in this country and take advantage of all the benefits that this country has to offer. Right, right. Fair enough. No, I completely agree with you. And as as I mentioned before, I think that the United States, I'm a, I'm a patriot to the core. And uh, my point actually in, in mentioning that though, was that it was the, tr- it, the trigger that got you into the United States actually the first time was this uh, action, right? That involved Noriega. So when you arrived in the United States, um, you were 12 years old and did not speak English. Right? Yeah, the reason why the reason and why that is must have been tough. When, yeah, and, and the reason why it was because when when uh, this thing went down, the opposite party once mm-hmm. Noriega was captured, mm-hmm. the opposite party took over, and they started firing and going after everyone that supported Noriega, whether they right. had anything to do or nothing to do. If there were supporters of Noriega, they went after everybody. Mm-hmm. So they were obviously went after my grandfather. Uh, they went after my parents and they, they, my parents lost their jobs and things like that. So things became very complicated for my parents. And my mother had a sister, her middle sister, that lived in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, they had been living there for a few years. And she, she called her and asked her if, if they had an opportunity for my father to, to work. And then they, they had got him an opportunity and my father decided to go first. And, uh, but there was, there was persecution. There, there was persecution. Mm-hmm. There was pressure being put on my family's life. And that was one of the reasons why we fled uh, to Atlanta and landed in Miami in December 24th, 1989. Mm-hmm. And we were, uh, you know, a few days later in Atlanta, Georgia and, and Sandy Springs areas were, where we, we moved to, uh, you know, back in 1990, so. Right, gotcha. And I, and I guess that's, you know, that's kind of where the story, at least in my opinion, uh, reading your book, that's kind of where the story started to take off from me. That's kind of where the things started getting juicy. You know, when you were 12 years old and you're in Georgia, and then later on you moved to Texas, right? So can you tell us a little bit about that transition? Yeah, living in Georgia was a, a very, very special experience because we always wanted to come to America. Mm-hmm. We've always thought about like high-rise buildings and blonde girls with blue eyes. We don't <laughs> see that often over there. So it was always in our, in our plans to come to America and, and, and really live that dream of the high-rise buildings and clean streets and all that. And when we were there, uh, it was kind of like a dream come true. Now, of course, mm-hmm. one of the things that we never thought <laughs> was the challenges that came along with that, right? <laughs> we right, enjoyed right. It. Yeah, we enjoy the scenery. We enjoy like everything that this country had to offer us. But then the challenges began to happen when I started going to school, but I was, I didn't know how to speak English, but I was too old to be in fifth grade or fourth grade. But at the same time, I had to be in fifth grade to learn how to speak. Uh, and then, you know, knowing that my father was the only provider in the home, 
you know, and, and, and that he had to fed four children and a wife, you know, we, it was very unpredictable how tomorrow was going to be. We're, we're go- are we going to have a full meal or are we going to, are we going to share the same things? Or is, it, is it, any of us are going to stay hungry, you know, type of thing. But, you know, my parents managed to do everything they could. Very grateful for that. And the experience in Atlanta was really, really awesome to an extent. We got to experience for the first time snow, which was kind of cool too, and make a snowman and things like that. Now we're talking, this is, uh, you know, early 90s. So, you know, one of the challenges that I lived in Atlanta, you know, it was that we were like 6% Hispanic in the school. So there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of people that were prejudiced against us and, and things like that. I was very talented in sports and, and surpassed a lot of other athletes in the school. And, you know, I would have people get upset and talk. Most of the time, I didn't understand what they were saying anyways. <laughs> so I guess to an extent, it didn't really get to me because I didn't understand it. But it was, there was an incident that happened at the gym one time after we played dodgeball that this, this black kid, you know, uh, there was a, a group of kids that surrounded me, made a circle, and then threw this real skinny black kid in the middle of the circle and encouraged him to fight me. I had no idea why. Only thing I can think of, they were jealous because I was a better runner than they were. But, okay. you know, uh, whatever the reason was, I, I tried to avoid fighting because, because of a lot of reasons. Number one, I'm, I'm undocumented. Number two, I'm mm-hmm. in a completely new, new place and all I want to do is do the right thing. I'm not here to provoke anybody or anything. And so I didn't know how to react. And it wasn't until this kid swung at me a few times that I just, I felt, I looked over and I looked at my PE teacher in Anglo and he didn't do anything. And he saw me in the middle of the circle and I was like, okay. And so this kid kept swinging at me and I couldn't get out of the circle. I mean, there was probably a total of 15 kids around and I finally had to defend myself and I swung and I hit him in the jaw and the kid fell, started crying. And then the the PE teacher came and grabbed me and took me to the principal's office and spelled me from school. So, you know, those kinds of things, you know, then I got moved from fifth grade to eighth grade. uh, And um, even though I got jumped around like that, you know, I was pretty good student, but it was very challenging to do math because jumping around from grades, you got to kind of follow a sequence when you do math. And I was just, I jumped around so much. I always felt like I wasn't really smart in math uh, because I, 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 I was, I was jumped around so much, but, in middle school, I had an experience where I was trying to go to this soda machine and uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to get a, a soda. And uh, in Georgia, they had one kind of like like uh, the Mountain Dew, but it's called Yellow Mellow. Okay. And uh, I, I went to the it. soda machine. What's that? I remember it. Yeah, yeah. I went to the soda machine and I, and I asked, there was this really, really cute girl with braces. I always... Love girls with braces. I don't know why. This little blonde girl with blue eyes. And she had braces. And I had a crush on this girl, right? So she's making lines. So I decided to buy a soda because she was there. And, I, well, that was a mistake. Because if I was trying to impress her, uh, that didn't work out. <laughs> that backfired mm-hmm. on me. But I, I asked, can I have a Jello Mellow? Because, you know, the Y in Spanish is pronounced like the J. So mm-hmm. I say Jello Mellow, and I just remember it was like four people there making line. And I just remember everybody busting laughing, and I don't know if humans can turn different colors, but I probably turned like I don't know how many colors because I was so embarrassed. And you know, as a as a young fourteen year old, you don't 
you know, bullying wasn't a big thing back in the days. So mm-hmm. never really got bullied, but I really felt really, really bad when they laughed at me. And then I came back home and told my mother, I don't want to go back to school again. And then she came to me and told me, you know, son, one day you'll be bilingual. You'll have a lot of opportunities. And one day this is going to pay off for you. Don't quit now. I remember I was at a football game and I was a loner because I didn't know how to speak English. I wasn't the pop, Mr. Popular. I wasn't cool. Uh, and so I was just hanging out pretty much by myself. And I remember that day I was just thinking, you know, what am I doing here? Why do I have to go through all this struggle? Why do I have to go to all these people making fun of me and things like that? What? Why? And that was probably mm-hmm. the first time I ever felt like I wanted to go back home. <laughs> Oh, like, back to Panama. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I want to go back to the struggle there too, but I read the struggle there and speak my language, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah, but you know, I think at the end, your mom was right. And um, going going further on, I think this was just one of one of the, the beginning of many challenges that you would face as a youngster as a, and as a young man. And again, what really got me inspired was that, you know, you're thrown into just terrible situations. And yet still, with perseverance and belief and with grit, you pulled yourself out of every single hole. So with that point made, I want to transition into talking about your book currently for sale on Amazon. And also the audiobook version is available on Audible. And, and it's called Life of an Immigrant. And you know, today, uh, looking at the sales figures, your current your book is currently at number three hundred ninety three uh, within Hispanic and Latino biographies, and I I think that's quite good. It's a quite good ranking, despite it being fairly new to the market. So, oh, wow. wanted to con- con- wanted to congratulate you on that. And you know, Thank it is you. a very it is a new release. It's only been out for I believe about a month, if not uh, if right. not less. So, I think there's plenty of time for this ranking to significantly go up, but. For now, I want to congratulate you. This is a very impressive ranking, um, you know, being that your book is competing against thousands of others across the planet. Wow, that's great. So uh, I, for those who don't know, um, I was the narrator uh, of your audiobook a version of your story. Right. Right. And my company, Casma Records, we produced your audiobook as well. And as we, you know, we, we discussed before the interview, um, I think the main reason why it kept me hooked after the first few pages, uh, despite me, obviously, I'm not an immigrant, but of course, my, my grandfathers were, you know, it's a typical American story, but uh, I was engaged because, you know, it wasn't just an immigrant story about just someone new coming to America. It was, for me, it was so much more than that. It was a story about a man who fought through hell uh, at a chance to have a normal life and a family. And it was a truly inspiring read. You mentioned that you came to, you know, you came to the U.S. very young, not knowing any English, and you described some challenges where there was some bullying going on, not fitting in, being a loner uh, in school. But uh, there are a few moments in the book that I highlighted, C. Ray. And I, the reason why I highlighted them for myself was because, I mean, these moments really stood out for me as things you went through and things that, that I also went through in some variation. And also perhaps many other people out there who would listen to your audiobook or read your story uh, would definitely say, hey, say, hey, you know what? I, I've been there and I can't believe I was there and somehow I made it through and C Ray made it through, or even they could be thinking, I'm going through this right now and I'm thinking about throwing in the towel. 
you know, but reading about how Sea Ray just fought through thick and thin, I might be a little bit, get, have a few ideas and be inspired to resolve it in my life. So I wanted to jump um, to chapter five, which is called Corporate Life and Living the Lie. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, this is regarding, uh, there was a moment in chapter five where you're at a bar. Okay. And of course, you know, <laughs> my dad being kind of old school and also as a side note, reading your story, your dad kind of reminds me of my dad. I mean, they both seem to think very much the same way in many things, family first and conservative in many ways. And even when we were younger, you know, they gave us a bit of tough love that eventually paid off. And my dad told me something when I was young, okay, and when I was old enough to drink when I was in college. And my father told me, he said, Seth, take it from me. Nothing ever good happens after 10 p.m. at night at a bar. I would agree with him. <laughs> right, 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 sure. right. So in chapter five, you're at a bar and, um, you know, there was, there was an incident where there's a girl coming out of the bar and there's some flirting going on. And, uh, you know, she asks, I, I believe she, she asks, hey, like, do you have my number or something? And I don't know. Do you, do you remember this story? I she's do. coming out of the bar. Yeah, and I, it has I, to do it. She's like, yeah, she's coming out of the bar. And then you, have, you two have a conversation, and then it leads to some, well, shall we say, you know, the PG-13, for the PG-13 crowd out there, it leads to a, um, a, romantic, a romantic meeting. Okay, let's, say, let's just say that. An intimate moment, yeah. all right? Now, later on, um, it causes some issues, okay? Because uh, you left your, uh, your ID, right, with this woman right. in her car. Yes. Okay. But then, you know, my jaw dropped when I was reading this story, my jaw dropped. And I was like, because when you later wrote, you said, just, just coincidentally, this woman worked at the same place. My wife, my wife did at the time. And I was like, I was like, are you effing kidding me? Seriously? (laughs) Oh, just by coincidence. Right. And then you have to pursue her at your wife's workplace to get the ID back. Okay. Yes. Yes. Right. And, you know, and again, for, for those that want more context about that story, again, it, it gets deeper than that. But, you know, people should really pick up the book or get the audio book because this story is extremely entertaining. It's a little bit dark. And, you know, it is a little bit dark. There's some dark humor, you know, in this book. Um, but later on, after you have this intimate encounter with, um, a, you know, a woman from the bar in her car, shall we say, and then you lose your ID in her car, then you need to f- fetch it at your wife's office. Um, you had a quote, okay, that I want to read uh, in the interview because I highlighted this. And this, con- this really spoke to me. And, you know, it also, I showed a few friends this quote that you wrote and it really spoke to them as well about relationships and about learning about relationships, right? Okay. And you wrote, and I quote, sometimes in life, we get used to the people or person we are with and confuse love with being used to someone. I now know love is much deeper than a feeling or a good moment or being with a very nice person. It is a decision we make to love someone regardless of what changes. In my nine years of marriage with Kathy, I never thought I wouldn't be able to answer this obvious question. And this refers to a question she asked you about testing your love for her. Right. And then you go on to say, and I quote, this is what many relationships deal with today. Love isn't unconditional anymore. There is always something that gives us enough of a reason to look for the easy way out, sometimes without noticing the casualties left along the way. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think there is, there are, it is very easy, you know, in life where you're with someone for so long and, you know, is it, re- you're thinking, is it really love or is it more of companionship or are you just used to them and you're not comfortable about the idea of not being with them yet? Is that, is that really love? So can you, I, you know, but on your quote, can you kind of talk about that moment in your life where you had that realization that, you know, you said sometimes in life, we just get used to people and sometimes we confuse love with just being used to someone. We are creatures of habit, Seth, and Mm -hmm. we will do the same things over and over uh, if we're used to doing them. And it's no different in relationships. Now, I don't consider myself a Dr. Phil or, uh, you know, an expert in relationships, but I do have experience in them. And I, and I've learned from my mistakes. And that's one thing that I tell my children is that I, I, I paid the dues. I made the mistakes for you if you listen to my advice. But in regards to that quote, I had an experience with Catherine after that incident where, you know, closing time. And I met this person that I didn't know who she was. And uh, I ended up having to explain to my wife at the time, Catherine, why things happened the way they did. I was looking for a better outcome when I, when I opened up to her, but I, I can understand she was hurt and I can understand, you know, why she, she went to my parents' house and stayed with him, you know, for 30 days. But during that time, there was a lot of thinking. And so uh, I want to go back a little bit in regards to why people do what they do. See, a lot of mm-hmm. us are influenced. The Bible says that the children are the image of the parents. When you don't have a parent to have an image of a positive image of, then the world or whatever the surroundings you have will mold you to who you become. Some people have overcome big challenges like people that have, you know, a, a, a father, there's a drunk and one of their children came out to be a drunk as well, but the other one came out to be sober and never in his life wants to see an alcoholic beverage because he saw his father, you know, drunk all the time and abusive and whatnot. So, you know, we are, the image of our parents, and that's something that's in the Bible. So the, the, the funny thing about it is sometimes we don't realize why we do what we do, and it's all based on influence, always based on influence. You know, it's like if you're, if you're a parent, who teaches you how to be a parent? When mm-hmm. do you go to school to be a father or mother? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's bestowed upon, upon you, and you got to do the best you can. And what do you remember? You remember the influence your parents had in you and how they treated you. And that's your reference as to how to be a parent. So people, what they don't realize is that most of the, the things that we do in life are based on someone else's influence. And the reason why it's so important that you meditate on who you are is you got to sit down and study what you're doing and what works, what doesn't work, what hurts you, what doesn't hurt you. Because most people know their strength, but they don't know their weaknesses. And so mm-hmm. it's important that you focus on what your weaknesses are too, because you might be getting attacked in your weaknesses and then you can focus on your strength. And what happened to me was I always, I always was a very charming guy. And uh, I don't say that boastly, uh, boasting or anything like that. I just say I was always a charming guy that could talk to anybody and I wasn't afraid. I think that a lot had to do with my previous experience as a young guy being either bullied or having to... To, to become strong if I wanted to make it. So when I wanted to mm-hmm. quit and I told mom I want to go back home and that wasn't an option, I was forced to have to fight through that because that wasn't an option. And my only option was fight through it. So a lot of the things that I lived when I was a young guy made me who I am today, the relentless kind of guy, the guy that doesn't quit, 
that, so that's why I want people to go back and see how their childhood was, mm-hmm. how they reacted to how the parents were towards them. Or if they didn't have parents, how the grandparents or whoever was the guardian at the time or the people around you, because they have an influence in who you are today. And right. sometimes we got to go back, way back to find out why we are how we are, whether you like yeah. how you are, or you don't. Now, some people accept to be how they are, even if they don't like how they react sometimes, because mm-hmm. that's all they know. Yeah. And, uh, and for me, uh, when, when, when Catherine asked me, I remember we were, uh, I, was, I was in the living room of our home because I was staying at our house and she had moved to my parents. And I was looking at the, at the ceiling fan and the ceiling fan was spinning. And then I called her and I, and I wanted to talk to her. And I said, you need to come back home. And uh, she said, but why? And I said, because I love you and I want you to come, come home. And, uh, and, you know, and, and I'm sorry, and we need to work this out for our daughters. For, and she says, but I, you don't love me. And I said, what makes you think you don't love me? Of course I love you. He goes, if I had, you know, breast cancer and I lost my breast or both of my breasts, would you still love mm-hmm. me? Or if I had, you know, third degree burns and I didn't look as pretty anymore, would you love me the same? Or if I had, you know, uh, paralyzed and I couldn't, I couldn't ever walk again and you had to carry me all over the place. Will you still love me the same? And I remember this and, I, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say it, but it's part of my story and I don't think this way anymore. But, you know, like you were saying earlier, it's hard to sometimes share certain things with the world because they can twist and turn things for their, for their convenience, right? So people could turn this around and say, you know, what an a-hole this guy is or, you know, wow, I can't believe that these guys such a douche, you know, whatever the case may be. But this is the reality. This is how I thought at the time. And this is how I was. And, and I say was, cause I'm not like this anymore. Mm-hmm. I remember that, uh, when she, when she told me that I stood completely quiet and there was a stunned silence and she said, see, that's what I mean. You don't mm-hmm. love me. And that's what the call ended. So I said, and I started thinking and I said, how come after being married for nine years, eight years, I couldn't answer this question to the, the mother of my children, the woman I chose to be my wife. And it wasn't, it wasn't like I didn't love her. So let's get that straight because I loved her. It had to do with the meaning of what love is. Mm-hmm. See, the Bible says that my people perish for lack of understanding or lack of knowledge. So I feel that my knowledge or understanding of what love was or is, wasn't the correct one. And this is why in that quote I had on my book, I say, sometimes we think that love, we love someone, but we're just used to that person. Why I said that is because why would I go through the struggle of finding another girl, dating her, finding now if she's going to be nice to me, not nice to me, does she like to wash her feet or feet sting? Does she like to brush her teeth? Does she like to shower every day? Does she doesn't shower every day? I mean, she, you know, why would I want to go through all these struggles when I've already went through them with the person I'm with? And this is right. what people don't get it. Some people stay with whoever they're with because the kids, oh, I don't want to divorce. I don't, I don't love him or I don't, I don't love her, but I, I, I'm still with him because my kids, I don't want my kids to be heard because there's going to be a separation. Okay. Well, first and foremost, you're teaching your children that you should be with someone, but not because it's real love. 
because mm-hmm. it's convenient, because someone else is going to be hurt. You're going to hurt them no matter what you do. The best thing you can do when you don't love somebody is teach those people who you care why things are not working out and let them know the reason why as opposed to lie to them all across, you know, why you, you're with someone. Or, you know, or if you're, you, you just don't want to have to deal with a person that might not like to wash dishes and do all the chores in the house that they do for you. And then you might end up having to do it yourself. And then you like the fact that she doesn't. So you'll, you'll comply, you'll get through the argument and you'll try to work it out. But then love doesn't reign. And so the kids get to see, or the children get to see, you know, there is friction, there is argument, there is, you know, there's not the, great, the good communication, the love reigns above all. And then, you know, if you, if we disagree to agree to disagree, it's okay though. We still love each other. And that's one thing I learned when she asked me those three questions. You know, my love was conditional and I wanted mm-hmm. to find out what is unconditional love. And what unconditional love is, is something that I would tell you right now, 99% of the people in the world probably don't know or do it. Uh, and we, we confuse what real love is. And, and if you read in, you know, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it talks about what real love is. Love doesn't boast, doesn't envy forgives all things, you mm-hmm. know, is patient. So th- to be honest, if we really love somebody, we would really be patient with them. We would try to, and, and, and I'm also at fault even today uh, with, with, you know, my wife, because I don't show love, unconditional love the way I want to, though I am much better than I was before. So I'm also talking to myself as I'm giving the advice right now. But, you know, <laughs> what, what really matters, Seth, is not how many times you fall, but how many times you're willing to get up and keep fighting. Right. Because and again, I wanted to say, uh, sorry to interrupt, C-Ray, but I, what I wanted to say was, you know, uh, you know, you mentioned that maybe people think you're an a-hole. I mean, reading this segment of your book, I didn't think you're an asshole at all. In fact, I thought you're being painfully honest because... Who out there has, hasn't had uncertainty about some of their relationships, right? Uncertainty or confusion or the feeling of being not certain. You know, I even saw your words burned me in my heart because in my past, I have had relationships where I wasn't, sh- I wasn't completely certain about it. I wasn't sure about my love or the woman wasn't sure if she really loved me. You know, and I think it's kind of, it, it's part of the human condition even and, and, you know, from these experiences, we do nothing but grow and usually in a good way, right? So again, I wanted to say that, uh, uh, no, it was very engaging, this part of your story. Now, I wanted to also ask you, in the beginning of the chapter, you said that to your, fir- uh, your first wife, Kathy, uh, the first seven, and I quote, the first seven years of marriage was amazing. First seven years. Now, see, Ray, there's a saying of, you know, the seven-year itch where people start to have some uncertainty or people start getting bored or start questioning their marriage around seven years. Do you think that actually is a thing? No, I don't. And I will tell you, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to make this very clear uh, for, for everyone to understand what my downfall was. And I might not pretend to you, but I will give you my personal opinion about what my downfall was and what I believe uh, things didn't go the way they should have. Um, my parents, so uh, in 1997, I gave my life to Christ and I became a born again Christian and I, I began to walk in faith and learn a lot about uh, the walk in faith. And a lot of the things that I did, 
uh, in the past were very forgotten because I chose the path of learning more about the spiritual realm and about God and, and all these different things. And as I'm learning, I learned a lot about protection. Uh, God, God served his purpose in my life was shown when I started going to church and, you know, sharing the gospel with different people. And my life was just more peaceful. If you, if you know what I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that I didn't struggle with money sometimes, or I didn't have to apply for a job and I got denied, or it didn't mean that I didn't, I didn't have a wreck and I had to pay a big deductible. It didn't mean the life didn't go on. It's just that he handled a certain part of my life that was never handled before. I mean, if I, if I went through problems in life, I had some experience in certain problems in life, but I had no experience in the spiritual life. So for me, this was very, I was very passionate about it. It was very encouraging to know that there was another life that I didn't tap into that I was learning from. And it was how to, how the spiritual work, uh, the, the spiritual world works. And, mm-hmm. and, and I started learning more and more and more. So I got closer to God when I married Kathy, I, I didn't touch her before we got married. I chose to, 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 to wait until we finally got married to then have intimacy because I was a man of integrity that I, I, I wanted to do it right. And I was trying to follow the principles of the Bible, the word of God. And, and I did so. And so that's why my marriage with Catherine for the first seven years uh, was really good is because I kept a good connection with God. I kept God in the mix. God was number one, number two, number three, and then he came my wife and then everybody else. So because I was so spiritual in that regard, I was really trying to abide by what the Bible tells me I need to do to be blessed. I encouraged my wife to go to church with me, with attending my parents' church. I served in the ministry. I, I helped in the music. I just I was so involved with God that when I got a break and I started working for the bank, which if you're going to get to that topic, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But when I started doing things that I started seeing prosperity come and I was separating myself and my time was being consumed more with the things that I had to do as a man to provide for the household. And I started, I started, you know, uh, missing out on spending more time with God, going to church, not had to work, not had to do this, that. And my spiritual life began to diminish. That's, that was the beginning of my fall. So no, it wasn't right. a seven year. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just that I, I didn't keep that balance of my spiritual life, my personal life, my marriage life, my business life, all in order. And I went out of order and I started, you know, going back into the world slowly without realizing. So this wasn't, this tragedy wasn't something that happened overnight. This, this was something that evolved and slowly I kept going more further and further away from my commitments with God and my studies and learning the Bible and, and living a spiritual life. And that was, that was the reason why my guard was down and then the blow came and then I ended up losing my marriage. Right, right. Makes sense. And again, thank you for that. And again, uh, for those that decide to read your book or listen to the audio book, uh, this is from this story is from chapter five, which is called Corporate Life and Living the Lie. And this was one of my most favorite chapters uh, in your book. And that's why I brought it up first, because there were just so many. I mean, again, there are moments of humor. There are moments of, of comedy. But at the same time, uh, there was a huge amount of tragedy in here. And what I really liked was how you recovered from it and how you bounced back. You know, I like the part, you know, I like, everyone likes a good underdog story, right? 
and from right. chapter five, you were you were quickly becoming the underdog that everybody loves. So moving on, uh, the second chapter that I wanted to bring up with you, and again, a very special quote that I highlighted. So this is from chapter six, called "Life of an Immigrant Before and After." Now I quote: After so much frustration and financial struggles, I knew I needed to change something. One day, I woke up and told myself. I don't want this life anymore. I lost my car, lost my house, didn't have any money. I had nothing. To top it off, everyone that I thought was cool was gone, and I was back to my own lonely life of misery. We think others are supposed to make us happy, but that will never happen unless we are happy with ourselves first. We can't give what we have never received. Now the last part of that quote really hit me. So you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah that you part know, of your life. I remember I, I was I was at my house, and Catherine had moved on. We were already divorced, and I chose to just kind of sort of party and go mind my own. There was there was there was some learning that I did through during the desert experience where I was, you know, trying to live life my way, like the sun says, right? Um, and I, I stayed late, party all night, then hang out with a bunch of people. Just I was in the, on a mission to just meet as many people as I could and be the coolest guy ever. A lot, of the, a lot of that had to do with how I fell with my brother and how we grew up. We, I thought we were best friends, and somehow I lost him along the way. And not physically, but I mean, our relationship got very, very tarnished and he, he, he didn't want to hang out with me anymore. And I think that really affected me uh, uh, emotionally to the point where now that I was on my own, that I didn't save my marriage, that I was out partying, I wanted to meet everybody because I felt like I wanted to be everybody's friend and the cool guy since I was never the cool guy. You know, mm -hmm. obviously there was a lot of insecurities there and the self-esteem issue, obviously, right? But, you know, it's what I did. During that time, there was a lot of things that went, that happened, though I lost everything, that happened that I, I'm grateful for. Number one is, I found out in the desert who I really was. See, for many years, I didn't know my potential, who I really was. And mm -hmm. for the first time, I sang in public at a, at a club after hours, mm -hmm. opera, like classical music, and then I sang some stuff in the guitar. And it was the first time that I actually felt like I could be me. I love mm -hmm. hanging out with people. And then I found out, too, that I was a very social person, and it's something that I really missed. And I didn't know that it was in me. So being in the desert or being, uh, I guess, in the rebel mode after my divorce, I learned a lot about me. And I started mm -hmm. to appreciate me because there were some new things that came up that didn't come up before. So I'm mm -hmm. very grateful for that. However, the consequences of my actions led me to, you know, uh, to lose everything. And I didn't want to accept it. I, I was fighting with it because I would have these moments that were good and then but they weren't moments that last forever you know they were just temporary mm -hmm. moments that made me feel like i could but i was really on on a, on a on a road to to destruction for sure now i've never done any drugs in my life uh or anything like that but you know uh partying staying late all night hanging out with people was something that i felt was feeding me but it was feeding me the wrong thing so mm -hmm. for me it was very difficult to get out of that life. And one day I woke up my bed 
uh, after a poker night and hosting a poker game at my house. And some guys were crashed out on the couch and someone, you know, wake up next to me. And then I opened my eyes and I said, it's the same thing, just a different day. Mm -hmm. I'm not getting out of this and I'm tired of this. Just don't feel like I will never get anywhere. And I also feel knowing that I had a spiritual background that I understand about purpose-driven life. I said, I'm not living my purpose. So what did I do? And I don't know if I put this quote on my book. What did I do to really snap? This is the question that I asked myself that day when I woke mm -hmm. up at 11 o'clock in the morning. And I, I'm an I'm early bird, Seth. But I woke up at 11, 1. When I woke up, I said to myself, how do I reel things back on track? And I said, well, if I lose my purpose in life, then I will find my passion and there lies my purpose. And that's what mm -hmm. I did. I found my passion and I found what I love and I went after it and I woke up and I said, I don't want this anymore. And I went and searched for work and, and just getting out of this life. And slowly but surely I started, you know, and that's when, you know, during that time when I started working on finding, you know, I am Latino and, and that's how all that started. So... That's so do you think, do you think generally a lot of people get into trouble when they lack that passion and purpose in life? Well, yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's very difficult to find it when you're, when you're okay with what you're doing or the kind of life you're living. You got you to become uncomfortable mm -hmm. to be able to snap and begin to think what's best for you. When you're comfortable, it's just, you know, I was just telling someone yesterday, you know, you can dress a million dollars and have a mindset of a dollar and you still talk dollar. Or you can dress like a dollar and have a mindset of a million dollars and act like a million dollars. See, I don't have to dress up for people to listen to me. I can be wearing shirts and a cap and people will listen to me because of my mindset. Right. But if you dress, I mean, you can be a millionaire, a multi-billionaire, and still people not pay attention to you. It's just... It's about a mindset. You got to change your mindset. I had to change my mindset and then I can change everything else around me, you know? Right. And, and again, um, there was a second quote in this chapter. Again, we're on chapter six, life of an immigrant before and after. This second quote um, was very powerful for me and made a lot of sense that I, I could definitely relate to it. But, you know, you being a man that has been through just so much <laughs> in, this, in this life already, and you're not an old man. You're, you know, you look, you look like quite a young guy, very fit, with, uh, you know, many, 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 many decades ahead of you to do good, great things. Thank you. Um, you had a quote in the same chapter, and you said, "Life is ten percent what happens to you, and ninety percent how you react to it." Yes. So, I learned. <laughs> so when I was a young kid, I used to fight a lot. And sometimes for the stupidest reasons, to be honest, I didn't look at me right. And I look at him back like, what's up? And then there he goes, there's a fight. I never understood <laughs> why, you know, I reacted that way. But I realized that a lot of the outcome of my decision was based on my attitude. So mm -hmm. I chose to learn that it really is not, it's not uh, what happens to you everything that happens to you is based on how you react to it. And I knew that it was an attitude thing. And that's why I, I you know, and that's a quote that a lot of people have quoted before. And I, I didn't create the quote, but I believe it so firmly that it's 90% your attitude. 
mm-hmm. and only 10% what happens around you. I really do believe that because it depends on how you're going to react to it, you know, and, and I believe it. And that's what I used to get out of where I was. Why am I here? Why, why did I lose everything? Why do I keep borrowing money or why do I keep asking my mom to help me or my dad? Why? Why can I do this on my own? Because mm-hmm. my attitude ain't right. And that's why I put that quote on the book. So would you tell people that who are experiencing difficulties in their lives, would you tell people that the only person who can turn your life around is you? That's it. And, and here's, here's why. Because you can be your worst enemy. And why? Because if somebody tells me, Siri, you're not going to make it, I have a choice. I'll say to myself, you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe that comment makes me doubt. And then I'll give up because I believe what they said. Or maybe I'll say, okay, well, you don't believe I can make it, but guess what? I believe I can because I know what I can do and I will show the world that I can. You know, Steve Jobs said something very special. Before he died, he said, only the people who think they can conquer the world will. You know, and he said, even when he was in his deathbed, he was not even all the money I have can get me out of this bed. So mm-hmm. it really is about the choices you make in life. Right. So honestly, I will always preach that you can be your worst enemy. For example, I didn't want to play music in public. I didn't want to sing in public because I felt I wasn't good enough. But who told me I wasn't good enough when everybody else that heard me sing said I sang good? The only person that told me I wasn't good enough to sing and I believed them was me in my own head telling me I can't do it like like Brian McKnight or I can't do it like this guy. Why am I comparing myself? I'm not them. And that's why it's important people understand that they are and can be their worst enemy or their best ally. You can be your number one cheerleader and tell yourself that's why you have to have self-motivations, your drive to tell yourself, yes, I can. And yes, I will. Why? Because no one else pays your bills. No one else is there to tell you. You got to tell yourself. That's why I put on the book, love yourself before you love anyone else. Because if you don't love you, you can't love anyone. You can't ever, you know, give what you never received. Right. That makes total sense. Uh, Now, we're going to move on and tackle the final chapter of the book that I highlighted. And uh, this is chapter seven called Finding Christ. Now, again, you have, a, you have a quote here that I highlighted because I thought it was great. And again, you mentioned earlier uh, in this uh, interview about the, your bank job. And I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but specifically what made you a lot of money at this point in your life was corporate sales, right? Yeah. yeah. Corporate sales. Okay. So you were earning a salary plus, I would imagine, a huge amount of commission because uh, you noted in your book that you were the reason why your manager went to the President's Club for the first time in his career, right? Yeah, yeah. You, know, so you must have been making a lot of money, not only for yourself, but for the manager and the company. Yeah, and that's, that's a very interesting story. Of course, I'm not going to go through it, but for those listeners, uh, you know, pick up the book or the audio book or the, or the you know, hard copy, whatever you want, whatever is best or, or, or the Kindle copy, but, uh, mm-hmm. and you read the whole story. But basically, really, this, there's two parts to it. I, I ended up at that job because Catherine worked at a restaurant in San Antonio, uh, and one of the, the waiters knew a guy that did socials and fake IDs and things like that. And, uh, and so I ended up getting a job with a fake ID 
in a fake social and I submitted my resume in Career Builder and I was able to get the job, uh, I, I made up some things in the in the resume. You know, you do what you got to do. I'm not ashamed to say it. You know, most most immigrants will do whatever they got to feed their family as long as it's not illegal, right? Uh, and too obvious. But I had to do it this way to be able because I, I had been I had been working you know, different jobs here and there that were giving me a little bit, but I wasn't making enough to sustain my family. I was a father of two daughters at the time and my son that was already with, with his first, uh, my first girlfriend that I had a son with her and mm-hmm. I had a responsibility. I had to take care of my kids. So once I got this job and I submitted this and uh, I remember that the first day was the best day of my life and people that want to know more, they got to read how the whole process, how I did the whole thing and and all in the book. But once I got the job, I remember the first day I, I walk out, it was probably close to 7.15 in the evening. And my boss, Jim, goes, so C-Ray, tell us what you're going to do for us. Because, you know, they saw my resume that I had sales experience and, you know, I was bilingual and this and that. And so he said, um, well, I said, uh, well, once I learn my product, is over. And he said, oh, it's over. Really? I said, yeah, yeah. I'll make you a lot of money and I'll make me some money. So, uh, you know, I, I remember from that story though, that like I was sweating some beads reading along, uh, when you mentioned that they're asked to see your ID and social security information. Right. And then <laughs> you're like, and I mean, of course it was fake. They're fake documents. And I remember reading that you're like, you offered to make a, a copy for them, right? Cause you needed, they needed a copy of your ID and your information. And basically you said, Hey, uh, you know, I'll make a copy. I'll make a copy of my information for you. You said that so they don't have to handle the documents, right? And check them themselves. And the interviewer said, oh, could you please do that? <laughs> and I'm like, oh. I did. I did. <laughs> and again, you know, it's funny, Seth, because that goes back to the confidence of, of someone, you know? I mean, I was so confident. I mean, I went in with the plan. I had already thought about different scenarios the moment of my interview. So one of the scenarios that I looked over and over and over was, what am I going to do when they ask me for my documents? Mm-hmm. And I had already tried to figure a way to send them a copy via email or go ahead and make a copy myself and then get it to them, uh, but not necessarily show them the actual document. And it, and it worked out that way. As I entertained him, I was talking to him and I was smiling and I was very confident and then he liked my attitude. He liked the way uh, my demeanor. And he says, hey, this guy looks like he's a good salesman. So I think everything was all set up by me. I think I worked it to where I got him excited enough to want to have me come and join the team that he didn't really feel the need to have to follow protocol. And, and that was just something that I thought before I got there. And then whenever I proposed for him to let me make a copy so he didn't have to get up out of his car, hey, don't worry about it. I said, no, no, don't worry, but listen, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and make the copy so you don't have to get up. And he's like, would you do that for me? Yeah, no, no problem. Where's your printer? It's right over there. So I went, <laughs> made the copies of it, put it back in my wallet and handed him the copies. I went, oh, I appreciate that while he was busy doing something else. So uh, it worked out. <laughs> I'm sure that won't work out all the time if, if someone else had a scenario like that, but it worked out for me then. And well, I was, well, I got things to learn. Some things to learn that self-belief, self-belief and confidence can it could be a magical moment. Where, you it, know? it can. Yeah, it can. And not only yeah. that, people will perceive it, Seth. People will know because my, my daughters, always, oh, they always tell me that you don't have to say anything, but you look intimidating, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and some people 
have a certain appearance, they, they, they already distill certain confidence without even saying a word. Or, or people will just look at him and say, well, this guy probably think he's all that in a bag of chips, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and they don't know. And until they know that person, they'll be able to say, oh, wow, I didn't know that he was so nice. So I think that I do this deal or I, I show, uh, you know, I, confidence when I go somewhere, the way I dress and the way I carry myself. And I think that played a big role in me being able to do to facilitate, the uh, you know, making copies as opposed to him making copies like he was supposed to. Gotcha. And uh, talking about the bank job, and I know, I know we went over this quite a bit, but there's a quote that relates to your sudden financial success stemming from your corporate sales job. And you said, when I got my hands on the gold ring, I didn't want to let it go. I didn't want to give up that treasure. I became greedy. I became overconfident. I knew I was good at what I did. I occupied my time by acquiring more stuff, reaching for toys, trinkets, and hollow trappings. I let myself be dragged down with a life of excess and greed, not only because everyone else was trying to do it and because I could, but because it was fun easy, and it stroked my ego. Now, my question about that part, because this is the part where you suddenly started making a huge amount of money as a, as a very young man, right? Yeah, yeah. I was making uh, way over six figures, yeah. And my, I mean, the question is, I mean, uh, it, uh, from your experiences here, this sudden amount of success, the sudden amount of riches, the financial power you had, yeah, I think it wasn't the power necessarily. I think, again, I go back to the lack of knowledge. If you, uh, what's the saying about, uh, fool me once, shame on me. Mm-hmm. Fool me twice. No, actually, fool me once, shame on you. Shame on you, fool yeah. Me twice, <laughs> shame on me. Right. So I think that's what happened to me. If I knew that this life I was living was going to take me to destruction or it was going to take me to lose my marriage and end up in, 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 in all these different tragedies, I wouldn't have done it. But again, sometimes, and that's why the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil, not money itself, but the love of money, because it comes with greed, it comes with all selfishness, pride, all kinds of different things that will take you in the wrong path. And that's what they say, you know, pride comes before the fall. So I think that the problem with me during that time is I needed such a break to make money because I struggled so much that when I got that break and I was able to become a professional per se in the banking industry, I didn't know how to handle it the mm-hmm. right way. Mm-hmm. And I think that I allow myself to let my accomplishment get the best of me, not knowing that pride would come with, with such an effort or compensation financially, pride would come if if I didn't submit it or tamed it, and I just let it. I, I just let it rise above my humbleness, and I started making money. I bought my my wife at the time a new car. I surprised her, you know, for Christmas, and my kids had everything. They were young. Uh, I had a brand new house that I built from scratch. Uh, I had a Mercedes Benz. Uh, you know, I felt like I was on top of the world because I never experienced that before. I remember I've been an undocumented immigrant for 21 years or 20, you know, plus years. So I was, I I never had that kind of, I never lived a normal American life. Let's put Mm -hmm. it that way. I didn't have a remote control to open a car of my garage or, 
you know, I had a car that I could push start the button. Everything was always a struggle. Everything was always, we got to set up for this because we're not legal in this country. We can't do certain things. We got to be careful. So we have this really dark cloud over us that was always fear about what the next thing you could do. Be careful, be careful, be careful. So when I finally got this job, I felt for the first time like I was an actual citizen. Okay. Right. I got a job. I got a stable job. I can support my family. I do pay taxes. I'm a W-2 employee. Uh, I make money. I got a credit card. I felt normal for the first time. And I didn't think, I don't think I knew how to handle that. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you know, talking to you here and also in doing the research and preparing for this interview, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Bible scholar. And, uh, but when I was researching some of the themes that kept coming up again and again in your book, I was reminded of the tale of King Solomon. And it seems like in your life, there are many parallels to you uh, and this ancient figure. And I want to quote, there's a Bible quote that I pulled up from the research, Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 to 17. A king is commanded not to multiply horses or wives, neither greatly multiply to himself gold or silver. And as we know, in, in Kings, King Solomon violated all three of these, and there were pretty heavy consequences before there was you know, a, a, a path to redemption, right? Yeah. And again, reading, reading through your story, man, I saw, like, I, I was like, am I reading some kind of like modern King Solomon here? Because, I mean, in a way, in, in, in a way you were the king in, the, in your story. In your life, you were a king, the king, right? And, yeah. you know, uh, from Deuteronomy, a king is commanded not to multiply horses or wives. I mean, you had the white uh, mint Mitsubishi 3000 GT, which as, as you know, if people read your book or listen to the audiobook, that Mitsubishi was involved in quite a few interesting <laughs> stories, including a high-speed race. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there were some parts in the book where, you know, you were involved in the clubs and the bars and with that lifestyle... You had a lot of, you know, hot chicks around you and on your arms at all times. And uh, neither greatly multiplied to himself gold or silver. I mean, as a corporate salesman, you had immense success and your gold or sil and silver was multiplying very quickly in a very short period of time. I did. I was, I was very good. And I'm, I'm very proud of that season in my life because I learned that I could accomplish anything I set my mind to do. I remember, you know, one incident at work where my boss, uh, it was it was almost the end of the shift and it was uh, close to seven o'clock. And uh, he said to me, man, I need to get a couple of applications in, C-Ray. And uh, I remember that everyone was because we, we work for uh, a big banking corporation and, and we call the credit card department. Uh, we, I mean, not credit card department, the credit card holders to try mm -hmm. to offset them on a home equity loan. And he says, mm -hmm. man, I need to get a couple of applications in, C-Ray. And I remember I was just kind of chilling and I said, how many do you need? And all these guys that work with me, they were also dialing and whatnot. And he goes, how many do you need? He goes, hey, give me three or more. And I said, okay, I'll give you three right now. And then I got on the phone and I got three within about maybe 10 minutes. And so what, what that taught me, not only that I was talented, but also taught me that when you speak things into existence, that's why sometimes people speak certain negative things into existing without knowing that they can come become reality. That's why I'm really hesitant to say anything outspoken that I don't really mean. Uh, I'm right. really, you'll never hear me say anything negative at all. You'll never hear me say I'm sick. I feel like, you know, I'm just a positive person and I don't say 
negative things. I don't speak negative things. And I'll try to, obviously, uh, you know, for the most part. But then I spoke that I was going to get those. And I remember when I got him, I said to myself, wow, either they were set up for me already like that. I got lucky or I'm just good. And I came to the realization that determination is a, it's also a, a part of mindset, determination to accomplish something and, right. and the effort that you put into it. I mean, you're going to have good results. And I, I remember that all my efforts got me to be the number one in the region, number one, number one in the district, number one in the region, and, and number two in the country. All right, folks, we are back with C. Ray Stanziola. This is going to be part two of the interview um, with Mr. Stanziola regarding his new book, Life of an Immigrant. So, C. Ray, um, at the end of part one, uh, we were just uh, finishing talking about some quotes and some passages that I highlighted that I thought were quite powerful. And the final quote that I highlighted was from chapter seven, Finding Christ. Now, you already discussed previously that, you know, you've been through so much and you, through determination, strength, faith, and more, were able to not only adapt, but overcome and actually improve and evolve as a person. And you have a quote here, though, uh, and I quote, you said, people are drawn to my vibration when things are going well. And they see me as an important person. But when I need help or decide to make some change they don't understand or agree with, suddenly I'm not cool anymore. I have learned to choose my friends wisely. I have learned that sometimes it's better to be alone than to be in bad company. So can you talk a little bit about that, that, part of, uh, that point in your life and what generated that quote? Yeah, so... When remember when I, I shared with you about uh, Catherine and 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 me uh, realizing that I didn't know what real love was when she asked me those tough questions and I couldn't answer them. Remember that, right, right. Mm -hmm. And that kind of woke up in me the need of learning what real love was and practice what real love was because that's the thing we can we can learn we have knowledge of something but if we don't put it into practice it doesn't matter, right? So, um, so it's the same thing that happened with me. In regards to my friends, I noticed that when I was hanging around the club scene and I was one of the promoters and I knew a lot of people and I get people to, you know, go in the club, skip the line, don't have to pay a cover. I've got a VIP table waiting, uh, whether they earned it or not. I just wanted to be cool, getting some shots and everybody's all happy and I'm the cool guy. And my phone mm -hmm. is, they're blowing my phone up every day to just know where the next spot's going to be. But when I decided to change my life and look to a brighter future and lead a past life, you know, of partying and all that, now the people that hung out with me, that call me on a daily, didn't call me anymore. Or if I called them, they wouldn't answer or they wouldn't be there. So then I learned that, and it's just nature on people, that people that, you know, take advantage. Some do it purposely. Some just do it because they do it. But net-net, in your own circle of people, 
Because remember, I mentioned this earlier that you become what you're influenced by. Mm-hmm. Whether parents, I talked about the influence of the parents and the children. So believe it or not, that's why that's why modeling and uh, not modeling, but that, that's why uh, fashion fashion trends uh, happen so often. Someone came out with something and then he stuck with it and people want to follow it. And that's why fashion trends began. It's the same thing here. I just realized that the people that were around me, if they're not making me a better person, mm-hmm. if they're not making me grow, then I don't really need them. And it, and it has nothing to do with they're not being nice or cool. It's just, you know, iron sharpens iron. And I just, I, I decided uh, that I had to be more careful how I chose friends because I was hurt before. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not anymore a, a, an emotional person that moves by emotion, you know. But at the time, I got close to certain people and then suddenly I heard them say a few things or they wouldn't be there for me. And then I realized, you can, it's very difficult to call anyone just friend. So that's why I don't use the word love so easily or so lightly. I, I really take that serious when you say, I love someone. People say, I love my car. I love my pet. I love everything. They love it. That's a very powerful word. And I think that's the reason why people sometimes confuse real love with just whatever they love. I mean, real love is sacrifice all around. And mm-hmm. when you love somebody and you're not willing to sacrifice and you really don't love them, it's as simple as that. So it's the same thing with friends. Not everybody that tells you, man, you're my friend means they're your friend because I think they also don't understand the meaning of real friend. Your real friend means I'll tell you the truth even if it hurts. Right. I'll tell you things you don't want to hear because mm-hmm. I care. And mm-hmm. so that's why I decided to be very very uh, selective on the kind of friends. And that's why I, I wrote that quote that I'd rather be alone I've learned how to be alone. I accept myself for that, though I love mingling with people. And if I have to be alone, I'm okay with it. And, and I had to learn how to do that because I was very codependent and I needed people around me. And that's when I realized I need to be more, more, more careful how I choose my friends. And, you know, I can count them with one hand, and to be quite honest. That's why I wrote that quote. Gotcha. Now, if you had to wrap up our section about the book, if you had a favorite part of the book that is your personal favorite, uh, which part would it be? Which moment would it be? I have to say without a doubt, because from, you know, for the listeners in my book, there's, there's miracle, a miracle happening. There's accidents, car accidents happening. There's emigration situations and getting caught by immigration. There is love. There's an affair that's uh, a sort of like an invasion, like a war. I mean, there's a little bit of, everything i think uh you know but one of my favorites and i think one of the most meaningful to me because i really believe that was a miracle was Mm -hmm. when i when i was when i got ratted out and i got caught by ice Mm -hmm. that was probably emotionally speaking the biggest impact in my whole life was the day that these ice agents got got me Mm-hmm. And I felt like my world had just ended there because all these thoughts of they're going to take me away from my children. They're going to bust my family. They're going to, because of me, they're going to deport everybody. Uh, what am I going to do? I left the country that so long ago, I don't even know anything. I, I mean, there was just a thousand things going on as I was being driven in handcuffs to the federal building. So for me, that experience will always be 
the one that meant the most and they had the most purpose because with all the reasons that they had to deport me, they didn't. And I won this case and I give all the credit to God for giving me another chance to stay in this country. And that's why I believe I'm a man of purpose. Great. And Asiray, what message would, what is the main message that you'd like people to take away from reading your book or listening to your audio book? What is the main message here to both immigrants and non-immigrants? So in other words, in general, to people who you know, want to hear your story and want to take something away, something constructive to learn something, what is your main message you'd like people to receive from your story? And that's a great question. And you know what? It's, it's kind of interesting because normally with people that have books and they have a lot of things going on for them, uh, everyone wants to motivate someone else. Someone wants to encourage someone else that you can, you will fight through it, learn, read books, uh, educate yourself, do this, do that. And you will, you will, you will. But very little people give God the credit for everything you want to accomplish in life. And I think the message I want to give across to everyone is that you can be smart. There's a lot of intellectually smart people. Uh, there's a lot of professionals out there. There's a lot of talented, skilled people out there. They can accomplish anything they want. But at the end, it boils down to who you want to give the credit to. And I have to say that I don't see myself any different than a lot of different success stories of people like Tony Robbins and, and Dave Ramsey and, 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 and Grant Cardone or or, you know, many like, you know, Magic Johnson, whatever, Michael Jordan. I don't see me any different than them, even though they're very successful people. I mean, I think we all have a past and you, you got to know mm -hmm. the history behind the story. And everyone will have some kind of tribulation struggle that made them who they are today. And obviously they conquered and won because they fought through it. And that's, that's a lot had to do with their drive and their purpose in life. But what most people don't do when they reach to success is to give God the glory and everything, our creator. And I think that that's one of the things that I want to leave in this message because my book talks a lot about my conversion and my belief in God and my faith. And a lot of the things that happened to me that had some tragic moments were because of my disobedience or my rebelliousness that don't want to do it my way. But the moment I surrender all and I started really thinking about what the Bible tells me, how I got to do things, then I started realizing that it really meant more for me even though the results could be the same as someone who doesn't use faith like I do. But at the end, I care more about where my soul, my, my soul will go. And the Bible says, what good is it for a man to, to win the whole world and yeah, lose his soul. And I think I've been thinking about my soul destination more than my, my monetary gains with my talents, because at the end, when this is all said and done, where are we going to go? Have we ever asked ourselves that? I mean, have we ever asked ourselves what's going to happen at the end? When this, this road ends, whether it's mm -hmm. early, like it ended for my ex-wife, Catherine, at 41 years of age, we never thought that was going to happen, or whether it's going to be 90, 80, 100 years old. The bottom line is, I think that we don't think deep enough about what is eternal life or what happens after death. And that's one of the main reasons that my book has a lot of my faith in it, because I felt that my purpose in life was meaningful, and I discovered Truly, my gifts, when I give God all the glory and the honor for what, what he's done for me, because these gifts that I have had to have come from somewhere. And uh, I just I think that that's that's the message I want to I want to bring across is when you reach success or even when you're struggling, know that God is there even in the good times and the bad times. And that's the only true friend that never leaves you no matter what condition you're in.
I can tell you a handful of people that were there when I was, when I had good times and they're not anymore, you know, and I can tell you people that were there when they were, I was in bad times and they're not anymore. So, but I know one that stands tall and it's in every situation and, and it's God. And I, I love the Lord for that. And I, I thank Jesus for saving my soul and, and, and I give him all the glory. And, and I'm not trying to get spiritual or, or, or religious on anybody, but I just really think that if we thought about our destiny, Mm-hmm. spiritually speaking more as opposed to our destiny on this earth and what we can accomplish, then you can win all around because there is life after death. And I don't think we think about it too much. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, public speakers and motivational speakers talk about tithing uh, and giving to the poor and the needy and all of that. But that's all biblical. Right. They just don't, ha- they just don't give the credit to God, but that's all biblical because tithing was a term that got created that the 10% of your, your income, your earnings, you know, and that's the way that you, you honor God and you obey God. I mean, the, the tithing is, is a biblical principle, whether you give God, you know, the credit or not. If you talk about karma, you know, karma is a bitch, you know, excuse my French, but you know, the Bible talks about whatever you sow that you shall reap, but the world calls it karma. Well, the Bible calls it whatever you sow that you shall reap, but b- people don't give credit to the Bible and all these positive uh, quotes that they, they go around. And I just want to let everyone know that God is the center of everything, whether you want to accept it or not, whether you believe it or not. And, uh, and so I, I just want to, uh, that's my message, you know, that give God the credit and, and learn a little bit more about your spiritual life and what happens after death. Because I believe wholeheartedly that everything I went through had a divine purpose because there's no way, physically speaking, that having four car accidents in one year going over 90 miles an hour with not one scratch or getting caught uh, after 21 years of being you know, illegal in this country with uh, fake documents or, or even uh, you know, going through the death of my ex, you know, ex-wife that would never thought that I would end up telling my daughters that I'm going to be a father and a mother at the same time now because their mom is gone. Like all these things, you know, coming to this country and not knowing how to speak English, being bullied and made fun of, like all those things, I don't think they happen just to happen. And so I can just tell you, you know, I'm, I'm tough. No, I think they happen because there was a purpose in my life. And I think that was driving that purpose. And it was taking me to, to for me to acknowledge that that's why I'm, I'm who I am today. And I wanted to add too, you mentioned of the four car accidents. As I recall from your book, uh, driving your various vehicles, but I remember the Mitsubishi as well. Um, in these accidents, no one was killed and no one was seriously hurt. Am I right? That's correct. Yeah. And no, right. most, most of them were, were me. Just uh, like one of them was me going 90 miles an hour down uh, 410 in San Antonio. And I lost control of my vehicle because someone cut me off. And if I, if I break, I was going to ram them or hit them in the back. So I swerved, lost control, hit a ditch, flipped the car you know, over. And then I ended up you know, on the side. I didn't hit anybody. This is crazy though, because it was six o'clock, kind of rush hour. Same thing when uh, I was driving and I fell asleep and I hit a curb and then I turned my car, swerved, hit the, the boulevard in the middle of the road and then went airborne, hit two trees and landed sideways and the car was about to explode. I mean, Jeez. I was going 91 miles an hour, lost control. My 3000 GT caused a seven car collision. One car was flipped over, but no one seriously, no one died or anything or ser- seriously injured. So yeah, mm-hmm. I believe God was in it. I believe that the angels protected me because I have a purpose and I, and I, and that's the reason why I'm so motivated to stand tall and start sharing my story with people because I believe people will relate and the message is God is in everything you do in life, whether you give him credit or not. 
Well, and again, you know, looking going through your story, there are just so many circumstances and incidents where, I mean, if just the chances of you dying <laughs> or the chances of you getting seriously hurt and incapacitated or the chances of your life in America being finished because of, of deportation, I mean, there are so many moments and opportunities for you to really get screwed. No, I'm serious. I mean, you could have been screwed or you could have just been dead and killed. Absolutely. And somehow, not only that, somehow you always got out of it. <laughs> not only that, Seth, I mean, I didn't talk about the fact that, you know, uh, when I burned my hand, almost third oh, degree burn and I almost lost my hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't talk about that. I had epilepsy and I, I almost died of epilepsy. I mean, you know, and the Lord healed me from it. So yeah, you're right. You're absolutely 100%. I've probably had more things happen to me in one's life uh, that I couldn't anymore think that it was luck, but I had to believe there was a divine purpose. And that's why I'm str- I strongly believe that I have divine purpose on this, on this earth. And God allowed me to have adopted children become a parent to my biological children and a mother and a father for them now, uh, be able to help. And my parents look up to me and tell me that they know I'm their hope and they, they're really proud of me. And, and I'm excited to know my parents. They know that I will always be here to take care of them. And that's the purpose why I'm working so hard for. And I think being grateful, being grateful and acknowledging God in all things is what really gets you to learn and understand what your real divine purpose is. And, and not to get too, uh, too mystical on the audience here, but there is a story in your book that I've noted, which was kind of, <laughs> when I was reading it, it was, it was quite strange. Um, because again, it referred back to you having so many quote-unquote coincidences. And you know, by the time I finished the book, I was like, you know, there was no way this man had, it was that lucky. There is no way that this man had that, this many coincidences in a short period of time, you know, your, yeah. your, tw- your early, your 20s and your 30s. And there was one story that, that came out to me that uh, could have been, you know, out of a, out of a fantasy book, it could have been out of, a, out of a supernatural book, but it happened. And as you reported, you know, you're, you ran out of gas and you ran out of gas uh, and you had to pull over your car, right, to a gas station. Oh, yeah. And you didn't have any, right. And you remember this one, you didn't have any money and you said a prayer in your car before pulling up to the station, uh, asking God for help, putting yourself out there. And you tried to pay for some gas with your credit card. It was declined. So you really were stuck. You were not only stuck, you were broke at the time. (laughs) And, you know, even I could, I could not imagine what was going through your head, but maybe you were thinking, well, I'm screwed. And suddenly there is a guy that as you wrote, there's a man who comes out of nowhere with a gray beard and, and gray hair. And he comes up to you and says, I'd like to pay for your gas, right? So he goes ahead, he pays your gas, you fill up, you fill up the tank. And while you, you know, when you're finished filling up, you put the nozzle back on the receptacle and you turn around to thank this man and he, you couldn't find him. He just disappeared. Yeah, he was, he was, and I'll tell you what, I'm pretty quick on my feet, man. And I was very... I don't want to say to an extent, a little embarrassed because he came out of nowhere. He didn't even have a, I didn't even see him get out of a car. He just walked towards me and, and offered to do that. And I'm, I'm like, okay. I go, really? And he goes, yeah. Then I said, you sure? He goes, yeah. And of course I wasn't going to say no because I knew I needed it. 
But one uh, thing that uh, I wanna... but at the same time, but at the same time, you're thinking, okay, what is this guy trying to? What is this guy trying to sell? Well, me? yeah, because uh, <laughs> how many people come to you like like random and just tell you, let me give you here, here's a hundred dollars. Why? No, just cause. Like you know, obviously you're gonna think because I mean that's part that, that's the part of the physical. That's the part of that you know you're like think okay, well the logical part is why is this guy giving me gas money or wanting to pump gas in my car even though I need it? But I want to say something prior to when you said maybe I thought uh, you know I'm screwed now. Actually, I didn't think that, and I think it had a lot to do with my faith. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. faith it really what it what it does for you it allows you to believe something you haven't seen yet, as if it were already happened. And so I believed because of my convictions, because the way I walked my life, because the way I carry myself, because I knew my relationship with God and that I solely trusted that he will always be there for me. Because there is a promise in the Bible that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so I stood by that promise because if God wasn't a man of promise, then he'd be a liar. And I know he hasn't lied to me yet. So I stood tall and said, okay, Bible says that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. So uh, I'm in, in, in need now, but I've actually sowed seeds. I've helped others in the past. I know, Lord, you're not going to leave me here. Of course, at that very moment, even if I didn't have anyone come and pay for my gas, I wouldn't have doubted God. I still would have believed. Even if I had to walk somewhere and, or even had to call somebody, whatever I had to do, I would have done without doubting God anyways. But he showed me, I believe, through my faith, and that I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't shaken by this difficult moment, but I still believe that he can come through one way or the other. So when I got out of the car and I wanted to put gas, I wasn't thinking that I didn't have money. I, I thought I had some money in my cart, but when the car declined, that's when I was like, oh, and I started thinking, okay, who am I going to call? What am I going to do? So I didn't panic. I didn't think mm-hmm. I was screwed. I, I, I didn't panic. I just, I, I kept it very calm and collected. And I just said, okay, well, Lord, Okay, help me figure this out. What am I going to do? And so at that very moment, he comes and approaches me and offers to do that as I was trying to figure it out. Now, what could have happened was no one came. I was stranded there. I had to call somebody and eventually someone would have came and I still would have given God the credit and I still would have believed that God brought someone to help me. I don't believe at all that I would have been left there stranded at all. I believe that something would have happened because that's just my faith. And I think that's what triggered whatever miracle happened. Now, of course, me knowing the spiritual realm or understanding understanding it a little bit, I realized that that was an angel. That was a miracle. That was God bringing his provision to me because of my faithfulness to him and his faithfulness to to me. Because, I mean, God is faithful even when we're unfaithful to him. So that was just one way of God showing me he's real. Now, it could happen. There's people that have other examples, right? One guy that was going to get shot. And, the, and suddenly the gun didn't go off and they tried to do it again and it didn't go off. And then they walked away and left him by himself. And then his life was spared. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, that guy said, okay, God gave me two chances. I could have died. And I didn't. So it's just how you see it. But I believe that things just don't happen just to happen. And so the problem with people when they have incidents like mine is that they don't realize that that is a sign of God calling you to pay attention because he wants to do something special in your life. And he has something special for you. And you have to pay attention. And that's kind of like how God gives you uh, a little bit of a, uh, of, a, of a hint. Hey, man, hey, listen, I'm right here. I'm right here. But then some people, they're not spiritually driven, won't see it as God calling your attention. They'll see it as I'm lucky or how fortunate I am or my goodness, thank goodness. 
or whatever else. I just choose to believe that God is involved in everything that happens to me, whether it's good or bad. And what I mean bad is if something goes wrong, like a tragedy, like Kathy passing away, me having to be a father and a mother, to me, though that's a terrible situation, my daughters are struggling with their moms that it's absent now and whatnot. I still believe that there was a purpose behind that. Why? Because he brought unity to the family. My whole mm-hmm. family got together. We came in and became more close than we've ever been before, me and my brother as well. So even though there is a tragedy in the family, I believe that God can turn it around for, for the good, if you believe that. And the Bible also talks about it in Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So I know that no matter how difficult things, because being a Christian or being a believer doesn't mean that life is, nothing is going to go wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that means that you believe and you have the hopes are they lay in in the faith you have in God and that's all there is to it but life is still difficult life still has struggles and you just handle them different and that's one of the things that I learned and that's why my message in this book is uh you know also give God credit he deserves regardless because he, he is the one that at, at the end uh, is is moving things behind the scenes right got it so we talked about Life of an Immigrant, your book, which thoroughly goes into your past and your journey and your story from, you know, General Noriega's Panama through the invasion, which once again, the invasion triggering, which is usually a negative thing, was a trigger to eventually create a positive thing, at least for yourself and your family. And your book documents that journey uh, that began in, in Panama, then ended up in America. Let's kind of talk about where that journey ended up in the present day. So these days, as I understand, you are the founder of a business and a movement called I Am Latino, right? That is correct. And from your uh, company's website, uh, and I quote, your mission is to create a worldwide platform that promotes the talents and abilities of individuals found within La Cultura Latina creating ways to unite other cultures to learn to work together in unity because unity means power. So can you take a moment and talk a little bit about this mission and about what inspired you to create an organization and a movement that had this type of of message? Well, first thing I want to say, I love all colors and I love all people. And I am Latino was birthed out of an experience uh, with my legal status in this country. So when I was ratted out and I ended up in deportation, I was transferred from San Antonio, Texas, all the way to South Texas, Laredo. And when I was there, I was in, uh, in, a, in a bunk and I was, I was putting my stuff up in the bunk and there was this older guy around maybe close to 70, 60, probably eight or give or take. Mm-hmm. And he was holding court. He was, he was talking about, he was basically complaining about why he was in there. And I overheard the conversation. Mind you, at this point, I don't have any money in my pocket. They took all my stuff. I couldn't even call to have them bail me out. And my bond was set at like 10 grand. So I ended up listening to this guy's story. And what he was saying was, this situation that happened to me was during the last few months or years before uh, Bush was done with the, the Bush senior, I mean, junior, sorry, uh, before Obama came in power. And so he said he had been in the States. He was from Monterey, Mexico. I've been in the States for over 30 years. 
came to the States in the 70s, lived in San Antonio. And he had a, he owned his own business and would commune from Texas to Monterey often and never had any problems with immigration because he had a green card. But in the 70s, when he was a teenager or, or a young guy, he got caught with a little bit of marijuana. Mm-hmm. At that time, it was a misdemeanor. So it, was, it wasn't a really big deal. But, you know, years went by. And then 30 years later, I guess the laws changed. And so when he was coming back to the U.S. from Mexico, he got stopped. And they found that misdemeanor in his record mm-hmm. that had never really been disclosed to fed the federal system. So they put him in, in jail for that and gave him no bond. So he, he was complaining to the rest of the people saying, I can't believe this government allowed me to, I mean, I've been in this country for 30 plus years. I don't even have tickets, driving tickets. And for something I did back in the seventies, they got me stuck here with no bond to get out. No one running my business. Like they don't think I'm a professional that I also have people that I'm supporting and blah, blah, blah. And he was saying all that. And I heard that. And then I prayed and I said, Lord, give me an opportunity to get out of here and do something that we can show America, the world, that Latinos are also professionals, but we are also educated people that we also can handle our own. And, uh, and then I bonded out, paid the 10000 and I had been working for a, a magazine, a Latino magazine back uh, in, from California, but they weren't compensating me, and I was really frustrated. And I talked to a buddy of mine who at the time was my mentor, Clark Ortiz, and uh, he says, come over, come to Dallas. And I went to Dallas. I, I used to live in South Lake, Dallas. I went to South Lake, took me out to eat. I shared with him my frustrations. And I told him that, you know, you know, these guys are not paying me. And, I, and he goes, well, why don't you start your own magazine? And I said, me? Oh, man, come on, man, not me. And he goes, yeah, you. And if you do, I'll support you. And then, then I went back home, thought about a name, came up with I Am Latino back in 2013, January 11th, registered the LLC and started pushing I Am Latino as a platform to help Latinos tell their story and how they became who they became and why. Because it's important people to know the history behind the story. Not every success story, you know the history behind it. And it's important because it could help you. And so, uh, and that's how I Am Latino started because of that experience. Uh, when I was in, in, in Laredo in immigration jail. Right. Wow. So it's, it, it started in jail, <laughs> this, this yeah. brilliant idea. It was, yeah. born in, in, <laughs> it was born in Laredo prison, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, and again, I like, I like this theme going through your book and indeed your life story. You know, again, I mentioned the invasion of Panama, which tr- triggered your immigration that ended up in a while in a wildly successful story in America, you know, it's just the theme comes up again and again in your story that there's some negative thing that happens, some kind of tragedy or challenge. And somehow you found a way and you've showed people in your book how you could turn these lemons into true lemonade. It's incredible. <laughs> well, you know, it really it boils down to, um, some things that happened in my life, I brought them upon myself for the choices I made. Some, I don't even know why they showed up, but they showed up. And the other ones, I believe, circumstantial, you know, maybe at the wrong place at the wrong time, whatever the case may be. But I've always had one thing in mind. I'm the only person who can find a way out. 
No mm-hmm. one else is going to find it for me. So mm-hmm. I just think that I, I, it's a lot to do with character. You know, I think that inside of me, I have a winner's, you know, attitude and I, and I, I, and I don't, I want to fight until the end. And, and it really, not everybody has it. I mean, I've heard a lot of really, really compelling stories, man. I, you know, I heard a story about someone from Vietnam that they were trying to leave in a boat and they got shot and one of the sisters died and they had to swim, you know, ashore and sharks and I mean, all, all kinds of stuff. Everyone has a story. We all have a story. And the message, besides giving God the credit for everything that's happened in my life, the message too is tell your story because there, there's, there's going to be someone out there that you're going to be able to bless with your story. And that's what they are. The wisdom comes from experiencing things in life and those are to share. That's why, that's why I want to share my stories, even though some I didn't share this time around, I will next time around. I got a couple of more stories that I want to share in the near future that are very much uh, dramatic uh, and, and they're stories that I got to be real careful how I share them, but they will impact people and somebody's going to relate to them. And I think that it's important that people understand that your stories, your life is to be shared because someone else could be blessed with your story. And, you know, going from prison and, and being illegal for so long and all the things that we mentioned already, all I knew was to fight and fight back and, and learn along the way. So the only time you really, really lose is when you quit. But if you don't quit, it's just a learning experience to make you better. And that's why I'm very grateful for all the things that happened to me in the past, for all the people that talked about me, for all the things that were so difficult to overcome. Because at some point, I had to use my intelligence, my spirituality, my mind, my everything to figure it out. And, and it's what made me who I am today. That's why I'm how I am. And my only purpose in this life is to help others as much as I can, because I'm not money driven, though we need it. I'm purpose driven. And that's what I want to teach everyone. Learn what your purpose in life is. And then you'll see how you can bless others. Fantastic. That's, that's great advice. And I, in looking at your, the I Am Latino website, there appears to be an issue of the magazine. And as I can see, there are some beautiful Latina woman climb in a dress, uh, climbing out of a <laughs> Very cool car. Is that a Ferrari or something or a Lamborghini? It's a Viper. It's a Viper. Dodge it's a Viper. Dodge Viper V10. All right. Yeah. So it appears that your magazine uh, can be purchased and it's a digital magazine. And do you also have like a physical, a print copy that you distribute? Or We, we do have, the, we have, we have print copies as well, but they're free. People mm-hmm. can actually go to issue.com and then they can, they can actually view the magazine, uh, you know, online. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, basically read every article we've got from Congress people to, you know, very entrepreneur stories. We even have Eva Longoria's uh, nonprofit in one of our magazines. And, you know, I mean, we, we're just basically trying to make a difference in our, you know, uh, Latino culture. And, and uh, you know, it's amazing because, you know, Latinos are the only culture that has every color. And it's very interesting because we got from, you know, redheaded people to, you know, dark complected black, uh, light complected blonde, blue eyes, and they speak all Spanish. So we got all kinds of colors in Latinos. And so it's interesting because 
I am Latino is not only for Latinos, but we've had a great success with all kinds of people from Anglos to African-Americans. They support this movement and we all in unity just come together. And I, mean, I love the fact that I am Latino has brought other ethnicities together, not just Latinos. And I think it's a great project. I'm very excited to be leading it. And uh, I hope that it grows to be uh, something that will make a difference in, in people's lives for the better. Because like I said, you know, um, I just want to bless someone. I just want to help someone. I would just put my little grain of salt in this world. I'm not where I want to be for sure. I'm not where I used to be. And I'm just very grateful for every face of my life, every little thing. I'm very, very grateful. Right. And, you know, I looking over your organization and your magazine and your media, I like, I, I totally respect the mission here. And I think that, you know, not only as Americans, but just as humans, it's important to have that positive message of unity and seeking out what makes us more similar and alike and respecting that and learning about each other. Um, I think these days, it's that kind of positive, uplifting message is even more critical these days when, you know, there are, these are tough times on, on a variety of levels. And, um, you know, I mean, 2020 has been very challenging for many people and not only in the United States, as you know, you know, across the world, there's been Economic you know, problems, <clears throat> financial problems, political problems, social problems. So I really like, I really like your, the message and the mission behind I Am Latino. You're right. I thought that 2020 was going to be a year where everything was going to be pretty. Mm-hmm. I didn't see this coming. I don't think any of us saw it coming. And uh, all these racial issues going on right now, all this pandemic, social distancing stuff, we've never experienced this before. It caught everyone by surprise. And I'll tell you one thing, man. Um, I'm just glad that I, I have a movement that includes everybody. doesn't exclude anybody. Talent has no color. It's one of our slogans. And I, I'm just really excited to know that even though we've encountered in 2020 some difficult, difficult moments, I also want to squeeze as much lemon out of those lemons as I can to make a good lemonade. And Getting quarantined and being with family was such a good thing. Well, people were complaining. I was just thanking God that I didn't have to be at everywhere, busy all the time. And I giving my, my loved ones the undivided attention they really needed. And it was so good to know how important and how much they need us. We get so busy, so wrapped up with what we need to do to make ends meet. that we forget that we're raising, we're raising people that need you. And, uh, and then we, we only become a provider as opposed to a parent. And I wanted to, I, I, I got an awareness of that when I was quarantined. And that's why I decided to go from California back to Texas with my daughters, because I realized, man, why would I spend this quarantine time without my children? And, uh, mind you, I'm, I'm doing business. I'm, I'm in California doing business, but it was just such a good thing. Quarantine. I know that a lot of business were affected. So was mine. So was everybody's, but it, it was such a good opportunity in a wake-up call to realize how important it is to divide and order your life properly and divide your time properly. When you come home, take your hat off of business, man, leave it outside and come in here and be a parent, be a husband, be a wife, you know, as opposed to come back and get on the computer, start working, and then rob the time that your family needs. And one thing we can never get back is time. Once it's gone, it's gone. So, I mean, when I look, now my son is 23 in the Marines. And he was five years old a couple of years back. So that's one of the things that we have to realize. Time won't come back. 
And you mm-hmm. got to make the best of it. So you got to organize your life, make sure that you spend the right time with the right people and the right things because when, when he's gone, he's gone. He'll never come back. Perfect. So C-Ray, let's talk a little bit about the future to bring our interview to a close. My question for you is, for this year, what are you most looking forward to in the future, uh, either personally or professionally or even both? So beyond I Am Latino and beyond the distribution and promotion of your new book, which is, again, Life of an Immigrant, what else are you looking forward to this year? Do you have any other irons in the fire, so to say, regarding business or personal plans? Well, um, yeah, actually, we're working uh, now on the on the company level. We're working on building the TV network, which is I'm very passionate about television and entertainment, and I love to produce content. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I do is produce content. I love to do it um, and get that stable and back up and running. Uh, and also uh, one of the personal projects for the branding of my name and my, and my book and all that stuff, I am going to be writing a few more books, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to, I love to, to do professional speaking and encourage people and travel doing uh, motivational speaking or professional speaking. And uh, that's one of the things that we're going to be working uh, in the near future. Also, one of my final destinations, which I think is where I, I'd like to end up at, is I like to build and create my own studio and my own label. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a musician. I play several instruments and I love music and music is my passion. And uh, I think I do okay for, for, for as a musician. And I love to have, I love to produce and build talent and make my music and, and lay my thoughts and my ideas on a keyboard or on a guitar. So uh, that's probably what I want to do as a final destination is just do my music and promote, promote, uh, promote my music and things like that. But um, yeah. And of course, my main goal is to take care of my folks because they're the ones who got me here, you know. For every listener out there, just know they honor your parents because regardless of how they can be sometimes, we also have to be thankful that they gave us life and we have an opportunity to make it better than they did uh, uh, on this earth. Uh, we should be grateful no matter what. So, um, and that's pretty much it, my man. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, this has been C. Ray Stanziola, who is the author of Life of an Immigrant, The Journey to America for C. Ray Stanziola. And the book is newly released and is available on Amazon.com. And also, there's an audiobook version that we produced here at Cosmo Records, and you can get that at Audible. And also on the Casma Records YouTube channel, you can also listen to a free sample of the book. So again, uh, if you liked this content, please feel free to like and subscribe. And again, I would like to thank our esteemed guest, C. Ray Stanziola. Uh, C. Ray, thank you so much for your time. Well, the pleasure was mine. I'm very excited and I appreciate you having me on your show. And I hope that this message will bless somebody some of the listeners out there. So thank you for, for giving me this opportunity. All right. Take care. All right.